open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. Chapter 4, we are picking back up in 1 Peter after taking a short break last week to consider especially the the resurrection uh, again from 2 Timothy. And uh, the last uh, verse that we uh, ended with in 1 Peter was in verse 22, and so now we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, in light of the argument that Peter has been making about the suffering, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ, he then picks up and addresses the Christians in Asia Minor and says to them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, since therefore... Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. If you will, go with me again to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we have seen through the book of First Peter, and as we continue to see even now, The death and resurrection of Christ and His exaltation at Your right hand is is not just something that happened in the past and has no effects and no implications for us now, but rather it determines everything. It determines how we live. It determines the very way we think and see our own lives in the world. You, you call us to, to live as a people having been united to Christ by faith, who are also united to His death and resurrection, and who are looking forward with eager anticipation to the resurrection of all the dead to come. And because that is a certainty, because you have guaranteed by giving to us Your Holy Spirit. For it requires of us and calls us to now live in light of it. And so I pray for our time this morning, Lord, that as we consider Your Word, that You would teach us and instruct us in what this means for us even now. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite missionary biographies and autobiography as as well as that of John G. Patton. Uh, He wrote the detailed uh, autobiography uh, missionary work and and then John Piper has more recently uh, written a shorter biography uh, about him in his uh, larger book called uh, 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. Patton was a Scottish missionary in the late 1800s to the New Hebrides Islands, which are now the the islands and the the country of Vanuatu, which is just off of the southeast coast of Australia. 
the natives that lived there at the time were steeped in paganism and were truly, in every sense of the word, savages. No people you know, tend to get offended by the use of that word today. You can't, you can't describe uh, people of different cultures as savages, but they were indeed savages. The natives of these islands were cannibals. And many of the first missionaries to these islands were indeed killed by them and then eaten. And it was because of this fact that when Patton expressed his desire to go to these very people and to preach the Gospel and to make disciples of Christ of these savage natives, he was met with great criticism from some people that he knew very well. At one point in his autobiography, he tells of a certain man named Mr. Dixon. And when hearing that Patton would be going to the New Hebrides Islands, Mr. Dixon shouted at him and he said, The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! But then Patton responded to Mr. Dixon. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and, and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Now, what I love about that statement there from Patton is not only the, the cleverness and wit uh, that is present there, it's, it's certainly there, but I love how Patton was so deeply confident in the certainty of the work of Christ in His death and resurrection and the subsequent resurrection that will follow for all of His people. That the very logic of His thinking the way, the way he thinks about his life, the heart behind his decisions, and the willingness to spend his life serving the Lord unto death are all shaped by these truths. He operates in no other form of thinking except by understanding the world in light of the death and resurrection of Christ. Mr. Dixon, though he was a believer himself, was in this case not thinking like someone whose hope is grounded in the Gospel. He was reasoning more so like you would expect an unbeliever to reason. The way the world thinks, the way the, the unbelieving mind thinks and reasons is based on the assumption that the death and resurrection of Christ never happened. At best, it's just an ancient story from the past. And if that's the case, why would you give your life up in such a dangerous why would you risk being eaten by cannibals? Why would you risk your life for anything? There's, of course, nothing beyond the here and now. There's no eternity. There's no future. There's no hope for life beyond the grave. There's no concept of accountability before God. So why would you be willing to, to suffer? Worst of all, being cannibalized. That, that wouldn't make any sense. But on the other hand, if the Gospel of Christ is true, the real question is why would you not? Why would, not, why would your life not be given fully and completely to Christ, 
and the cause of the gospel and the glory of His name. Why would you shrink back from danger and risk if the gospel is true? Why would you not give your life in complete service to Christ who gave His own life for you and who rose from the dead that you might also live forever? If you are confident with absolute certainty that though you may die now, yet you will live and your body will rise from the grave. Why would you play it safe? Patton had a very gospel-rooted and yet a very simple way of thinking. The Lord has bought my redemption, my life, and my death belong to Him. He owns me. And I'm joyful over it. It's very simple. The logic is very simple. The Lord has bought me. I belong to Him. And this very simple way of thinking is also, of course, thoroughly biblical way of thinking. This is, in essence, what Peter is calling believers to here in our passage. This is how he wants us to view our own lives. To have the mind of Christ who was willing to suffer for the sake of doing the will of God and bring many sinners to God. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Peter begins here by exhorting believers to live in a particular way. And this way of living is what logically flows and is necessitated by the suffering, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ. Back in chapter 3, verse 17, Peter there had made an assertion. He, He had said, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And then he grounds this very assertion in the work and example of Christ beginning with His own sufferings as the righteous one and ending with His exaltation at the right hand of God. He says, for Christ also suffered once for all, righteous for the unrighteous. The Master you serve, the the Lord you love, the King you follow, He Himself suffered in the flesh for doing good. He knows your own sufferings. He has experienced your own sufferings Himself and even to an even greater extent. And He suffered willingly because He knew that beyond His own sufferings was glory. And beyond His own sufferings was the redemption of His people. The author of Hebrews puts this, this thought this way in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Jesus, who is the, the founder and perfecter of our faith, he says of Jesus that, that Him being the being the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, this this joy beyond His suffering, this joy of glory to come, this joy of redeemed sinners, the joy that was set before Him, He, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This Jesus suffered on behalf of the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. And having paid our redemption price at the cross, He was then raised and exalted 
and he declared his victory over all powers in heaven and on earth. This is not simply some story or some fable. This is reality. This is the direction that all of history has been moving in the direction towards and all of history continues to move in the direction towards. Christ seated on the throne, ruling and ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, what this means for us who are now believers in Christ and what this requires of us, this, this reality, what this requires of us is the subject of Peter's discourse that follows throughout the rest of chapter 4, but particularly here in these first six verses. When we come to verses 7 and following, we're going to see additional commands that Peter gives to believers in light of the death and resurrection of Christ. But this morning, we're going to look at verses. We're going to look at this first command that's given in verses 1 and 2, which is then followed by the, a warning and a promise. I want you to look with me first of all at this command in verses 1 to 2. Peter says here, he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. And, and the emphasis here is on Christ. The way this sentence is written is as if Peter is saying this, this resurrected, victorious, seated at the right hand of God, Son of God, Christ, if this Christ, since this Christ suffered in the flesh, and he goes on, and you also arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same intention as in the mind of Christ. This, this last phrase here that we we see has to do with the way that you process thoughts, this way of thinking, as it's said. It's, it's describing how somebody goes about making decisions. It's, it's describing how you plan things, how you, how you set goals, how you intend to act and live in a particular way, how you make resolves. You have a goal of some kind that you have to achieve. You're, you're of course, not going to reach that goal without some kind of plan that you put in place and then you carry out. And that whole process of mentally working through steps and determining to achieve a certain goal, that's what Peter is getting at here when he speaks of a way of thinking. And this whole way of thinking is to be defined by the way of thinking of Christ. How did Christ view His life? How did Christ view His own mission? How did Christ view His obedience to God? How did Christ view His relationship to sinners and His purpose in redeeming them? Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 8, we get a glimpse of this. Christ, Paul says of Christ, he says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or, or held on to. This exalted position before God. This, this is not something that, that he, he considered necessary to, to hold on to at all costs. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on cross. That's Christ's way of thinking. I'm leaving the riches of the glory of heaven behind. I'm taking upon myself the likeness of sinful flesh. I'm becoming a servant to redeem 
sinners. Chapter 3, verse 18, 1 Peter, we see there again, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That's His way of thinking. That's His purpose. That's what drives Him. To bring people to God. To glorify God through that work. In chapter 2, verse 21-24, Peter says there of Christ, that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. This determination in the mind of Christ to live exclusively for the will of God and to carry out the will of God and through that obedience to bring many sinners to God and to do this no matter the cost and no matter the suffering, to continue entrusting Himself to God even through the sufferings. This, Peter says, is the kind of mind that you yourselves are to have as well. You think of your life like that. That's what it's about. Notice also, as, as he says in this verse, notice, notice what he says again in verse 1. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. This is military language. But this is a battle cry. We are to have as Christians a wartime mentality. We saw last week that the Apostle Paul, even when he speaks of his, his own life, his, his life of obedience and following Christ, he, he speaks of it using the language of, of war and fighting. I fought the good fight, he says. The Christian life is a fight. It's a battle. It's not a vacation. It's not a call to relax. We do not just hop in the float that is Christ and drift down the river wherever the currents may take us. We are engaged in a battle. It is a fight. There are arrows that are constantly flying past our heads every single hour. There are swords that are being drawn and the armies of Satan are scheming with the flesh of our old man to ensnare us and trap us and kill us. Jesus promised that this would be the case for His disciples. He said to them in John 16, verse 33, In the world you will have tribulation." You will suffer. No one who's who's on the front lines of a battle can reasonably expect to come through the battlefield unharmed. You will be cut. You will be bruised. You will be scarred. You may even perhaps die on the field. But Jesus also adds when speaking to His disciples, but take heart. I've overcome the world. I've won the war. You can have courage and boldness on the field because the King has already secured and declared victory. There are many Christians who are presently in such a dangerous and and precarious position 
because they are living the Christian life as if it's nothing more than an appendix that's attached to the end of their lives. They are not preparing, they are not preparing themselves for battle. They are simply taking a Sunday afternoon stroll in the middle of a raging fight. That their minds are occupied with all of the cares and all of the pleasantries and all of the dainties that the world has to offer. Explosions are going off all around them. Other Christians are engaged fiercely in this battle. Some even dying right in front of them. The enemy is snarling at them and clearly announcing their intent to kill them. But it's as if their mind is so fixed on other things that they cannot even see the war that is unfolding right before their eyes. It's as if they're just in a daze as the bullets are whizzing by. And then, when suddenly an arrow flies at them and pierces them in the leg, or they're ensnared in some trap of sin. They're surprised that it happened. Where did that come from? Where did this arrow come from? How did that happen? And the rest of the saints who are engaged in battle have to say to this poor soul, we were warning you the whole time. We were shouting at you to awaken from your sleep. Your commanding officer, the king, had been shouting at you to put on your armor and you were walking oblivious to everything going on around you. Many Christians are, are like this. Every day, they wake up and they just go out for a stroll in the midst of the war. They've not developed the habit of sharpening the sword of God. They have not been calling for supplies by the Spirit in prayer. They have not taken up the shield of faith, the readiness of the Gospel. They leave their house Naked in the midst of a war. They are in danger of perishing. Brothers and sisters, this morning I wanted to ask you to, to examine your own life. Reflect on your own battle and the war that whether you are aware of it or not, you are engaged in. And to ask, are you armed? Are you equipped? Are you equipping yourself? Are you putting on the armor for war? Are the habits that you have formed or the habits you are forming currently in your life are they going to prepare you for affliction when it comes? Or are they going to indict you? Are they going to testify you are a soldier who is done with sin? Now you live completely for the will of God. Or... When the affliction comes and the arrows pierce you, are they going to expose you as a fraud? This is what Peter means here when he says at the end of verse 1, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions for the will of God. 
he's not saying here that there's some sinless perfection that we can reach now. The, the language here is one of resistance. If my life lived for the will of God such that like Christ, I will suffer for it. I'm done with sin. I'm done with it. I don't want it anymore. That's my resolve. I've ceased from it. That's the old man. That's the one who's been crucified. He's dead. I'm done. That's what he's getting at. It's that John G. Patton-like mentality. I'm willing to suffer for my Redeemer who bought me with his death and resurrection. And because of that, I'm done with sin. Your way of thinking. Or do you still want to play with it? Do you want to hold on to sin just a little longer and try and keep Christ insurance policy if something is wrong in the process? Or are you done with it? This leads us second to the warning that Peter gives us in verses 3-5. to five. Verse 3, he says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The time that is past suffices for doing these things. That's enough. The argument here is simple. If you're a Christian, for a Christian, you have obviously come to Christ as your Savior. That's what being a Christian means. You've come to Christ as your Savior. That He might save you from, among other things, your sin. Come to Jesus. Because my sin was destroying me, and by the grace of God, I saw its destructive power. He opened my eyes to it. And I came to Christ he would save me from those sins. Which means, you've seen, you've seen what our sign out front says. Wherever sin reigns, it ruins. You've seen that. You've known very clearly that the pleasure that sin promises is a lie. That the world it offers is condemned. And that its end is ultimately destruction. What the Gentiles do, as Peter says, what unbelievers do, that was once part of your life. And Peter's argument is the time you spent living in sin is enough. You don't need anymore. You ought not to want anymore. That's enough. That's enough guilt that was heaped upon your own head. As a Christian who is about doing the will of God, all of these various behaviors that the world promoted then and still continues to promote even today, these are not for you. Then he goes on describe the reaction of the world when Christians abstain from its wickedness. Verse 4, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Here especially we see the substance of the kind of persecution Peter's audience was presently facing. Not only did the pagans find the beliefs of Christians to be quite strange and 
offensive, but the fact that they would not participate in and, and celebrate and consider permissible much of the behaviors that pagans engaged in, this also was a source of controversy. This has always been the case, even down to the present day. Our own culture is constantly descending deeper and deeper into these very same kinds of pits of debauchery. Aldous Huxley wrote the book Brave New World almost a century ago about a dystopian future where part of the tyranny of the world would be the fact that people were enslaved to their pleasures. Part of the propaganda that was taught both to children and adults in this fictional world was that family and monogamy and exclusivity are part of a bygone. We've moved beyond. Now the motto was that everyone belongs to everyone else. Well, in many ways, what was purely in Huxley's world reality in our own society. With all manners of corruption and debauchery and breakdown in the realm of the family and the relationships between men and women. And though at one time it might have been excusable to believe that the world would tolerate you for simply not participating in its distortion of God's created order, Now that is increasingly not the case. Now you must must be firm. You must be an ally. You must be an activist. You must promote and celebrate godlessness or you must be punished and shamed. The world may for a time tolerate you in the name of peace and liberty or freedom or some other virtue that is deeply rooted in the Christian worldview. But the more that that Christian worldview is cast off, and the more those virtues are slowly eroded, the more we will see the world grow darker and darker until eventually that flood of debauchery, to use Peter's language, will overflow and every levee and dam that has been put in place over the centuries to hold it back will be overrun. So it is the case that it is to be expected that at a minimum, people will malign you when you do not join them in their sin. The bolder the culture becomes in its sin, the bolder that that hostility will grow. The warning that Peter gives about those who live in sin is that they will face the judgment of God. That flood may be raging. That a certain point put an end to it. He says in verse 5, but they, that is, the, the unbelievers who do these kinds of wicked acts described in verses 3 and 4, they will give account the living and the dead. They will have to account for this. It is a common belief then, as it is in many places now, that men will not have to answer for what they've done. There's no real concept of judgment after death among ancient pagan worldviews. Many of the idolatries that they worshipped were believed to be engaged in the same kinds of wickedness that, that men were doing. They were just doing what the gods were doing. So there was really no concept of accountability that context in mind, Peter here is reminding these Christians, he's saying to them, no, they will give an account. And 
before a righteous judge, they will be found guilty. And so the implication, of course, for the Christian is that you are not to join them in what brings condemnation. That's the warning. Do not drift or plunge yourself headfirst into that flood. Leads us then lastly to the promise that Peter gives. A promise and, and an encouragement we find in verse 6. When we come to verse 6, it's important to remember that unbelievers were maligning these Christians and that they did not believe they would have to give an account for their own lives. It's important to remember this because what appears to be the case is that part of their objection to these particular in Asia Minor was that the Gospel obviously had no benefit for them because even though these Christians believed in it, these very same Christians still died like everyone else. I mean, if the Gospel well, like you Christians say it is, if your God has risen from the dead and is able to raise the dead and by believing in Him you will have life forever, then why, Christian, why do you, after believing the Gospel, still die? Part of the substance of it. Criticism, Christian. Does not that prove the rightness of pagan beliefs? There is no judgment, that there is no ultimate accountability. And this objection and, and Peter's answer to it is really seen in verse 6. Unfortunately, I think the ESV obscures it a little bit. CSV, another translation, captures it best, I think, when it translates the first part of this like this. It says in verse 6, For this reason the gospel was also to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, then literally the text says they might live by the Spirit according to God. And the point is this. The unbelieving Gentiles are making a judgment. or They're, they're rendering a verdict about Christians who have heard and received the Gospel and who are now dead. And the judgment they're giving, Peter says, is according to men. Or according to, to human standards. According to a, a human way of thinking. They're looking at these now dead Christians. They're concluding, the Gospel has failed you. You see, you believed it, and you're dead. They believed it, and they're dead. You're dead, and your death is proof that just like we believe, there is no judgment we will face. And Peter's response is to really draw on the same contrast that he had made in chapter 3, verse 18, with Christ in order to point to the future resurrection. So in chapter 3, verse 18, if you look there again, Peter said of Christ, that He was put to death in the flesh. The, the judgment according to men about Christ at that point was that He was a failed Messiah. He's a fraud. He's a pretender. He's a criminal. He's dead on a cross. If you're the Son of God, bring yourself down. That's the judgment according to the flesh, according to human standards, not the Messiah. But then Peter goes on, verse 18, but he was made alive by the Spirit. And we saw that this was a reference to his subsequent resurrection, defeat of the grave, and the exposing of the unrighteous judgments of men. Well, here in verse 6, that contrast is basically the same. These believers who have heard the Gospel believe 
gospel and have since died are being judged in the flesh according to men. The pagans are saying, see, your gospel does not save you from the grave. You are dead like the rest. And thus the message you preach about all men having to give account before God is false. That won't happen. What does then Peter add? He says, though just according to human standards, they might live by the Spirit according to God. They will be raised. Just as Jesus was made alive by the Spirit, they will live by the Spirit. And they will be raised. God has a people that He has determined to save. And this people is not limited to only a particular moment in history some 2,000 years ago. His people consist of a people from all over the world, from all over the nations, and from all different generations. From all different times throughout history. Which means that while God is presently gathering His people to Himself, until that day that is appointed when He will raise them from the grave, for these thousands of years, now in between this work, it is to be expected that people will hear the Gospel, believe the Gospel, and they'll die. That's not surprising. That doesn't render the Gospel untrue. The resurrection of is what guarantees that that day will come according to God. When Christ was raised from the dead, as we even saw last week, it was God's testimony, Him bearing witness to the world that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, and is now seated at the right hand of God ready to judge the living and the dead. And now He summons all people everywhere and at all times to repent. For a day of judgment is coming. That is our promise that Peter reminds us of. That is our hope. That though dead, we shall live. So what sort of people are we to be now? And how are we to live? We are to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. With this rock-solid conclusion founded on the work of God who does not change and who cannot lie. We are to set very joy before us. Lay aside every weight of sin that clings so closely. We are to be prepared to endure suffering. We are to be prepared to endure having to carry our own crosses and we are to look beyond those crosses to the glory that is to come give our lives to the will of God. And we are to be we are to be risk takers. We are to be those who are so confident in the gospel and in the resurrection of Christ that we do not shrink back from danger. We are to fight boldly on the battlefield because our captain has gone before us and he has slain the enemy of death and Hades. Now he summons us to follow him on the field and to follow him into the land of Canaan.
And when we enter that land, the walls of sin will come crumbling down as easy as the walls of Jericho came crumbling down. And we will come into the land of promise with our king and we will stand in victory with him. That is our promise. And that is what we are to stake our lives and our deaths upon. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, your people at this time were enduring the maligning voices of the culture around them for believing in Christ and pursuing holiness. And Lord, as the nature of man has not changed, this is something that indeed all Christians are warned and prepared for throughout Scripture, that all those who seek to live faithful, and godly, and holy lives for Christ and the will of God shall suffer persecution of some form or another. And Lord, I pray that even now you would be equipping us and preparing us and putting on each piece of the armor and strengthening it so that when the flaming arrows come our way, we, we would be able to endure and to continue to press forward and not shrink back in fear. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a bold people who are marching forward in the battle against our own sin and the sin that is so prevalently around us. And for this, we need your strength and we need the power of the resurrection at work within us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would grant that to us. In Jesus' name, amen.